You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. President Saul Ramaphosa will travel to attend the G7 Leader Summit on Friday where he'll be taking a message of hope about the prospects for South Africa's recovery and the global recovery. Writing in his weekly open letter, Ramaphosa said that uh, this was a message that not all South Africans are ready for, quite as our vaccine rollout struggles to get out of second gear while we're having no problem speeding through the load shedding gears to stage four. Imagine managing a cold chain in this situation. And the problem is that ESCOM's main shareholder has kicked the debt can down the road for far too long. Government's preference instead is for putting a, a band-aid on the ailing SOE, thinking that it can still be an instrument of the developmental state, when clearly it's not. And as our water is more intermittent than our commitment to fighting corruption, uh, we also have a health minister on special leave replaced by a race-obsessed minister of tourism. Ramaphosa said that South Africa is making progress in resolving many of the country's challenges, from corruption to energy shortages to the obstacles that discourage investment. The pace of reform is picking up, he said. And he added that government uh, doesn't take the patience and the resilience of the South African people for granted. Well, the sad reality is that uh, for all the talk of reform, we sit with an energy minister who refuses to budge on the number one constraint to economic growth, power. And uh, while South Africa's delegation to the G7 uh, summit will talk about the green shoots of economic progress, in reality, all we see is an emperor walking naked in a garden of growth choking weeds. To review the week that was, I'm joined now by Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo Asset Managers, Raymond Parsons, Professor in the School of Business and Governance at Northwest University, and Isa Plunger, Chief Economist at Alexander Forbes. Warwick, let's just start with the markets this week. It all feels a little bit directionless, and with the Northern Hemisphere earnings season behind us, the summer setting in, it's really hard to tell what the next major catalyst is going to be. How do you view it? Michael, I think there is an element of, of uncertainty here, and I think the, the operative word is basically uh, taper. I think uh, expectations in terms of, or perhaps a better, better word might be hopes, for economic growth and recovery, especially in the likes of the United States, have been met. Uh, I mean, I'm seeing uh, prognostications and projections that the U.S. economy could, in fact, uh, revert above trend growth as early as the end of this year, which is a stunningly fast recovery. Uh, certainly the likes of South Africa taking a lot longer to recover, but we, mm. we were in a much weaker position before. But other economies jumping ahead, which then raises the question, well, I mean, we've had the, the likes of the Federal Reserve uh, absolutely opening the sluices on monetary policy, You've had the federal government um, having extremely accommodative and stimulatory fiscal policy. And for how much longer does one persist uh, with these kind of uh, flywheel kicking type initiatives? There's at a certain point where economies reach escape velocity and don't need this kind of intervention. Um, and how does these bodies uh, transition themselves into that environment? How do mm -hmm. central banks start taking out some of the liquidity that they have poured in? Um, and not just after taking liquidity out, how do they then start normalizing the interest rate policy regime um, to start uh, facing up to the potential of inflation being more than transitory without going and blowing up 
Mm. Uh, the recovery via stock market or bond market crashes. That is a big challenge. And Isa, to bring you in, uh, Clarida uh, was on record recently saying that uh, the Fed is obviously going to be data dependent here, looking at full employment, looking at uh, sustained inflation above 2%. And I think Martin Wolf writing in the FT was pretty much spot on when he said that the risk of being too data dependent and not trying to forecast is that by the time you get to that point, the economy is already overheated. And inflation, that genie is out the bottle. We remember what happened with Paul Volcker in, in the 70s and you know, having to hike rates very quickly, it led to the LATAM debt crisis. There's a lot more debt floating around the world now, Isa. Look, I think the, the reality is the pandemic has uh, made a lot of countries accumulate significant amount of debt, such that adjusting interest rates now and at an aggressive pace will put a lot of countries into default territory. We already know a lot of the poor countries, particularly in Africa, have requested debt forgiveness, some even uh, the scrapping of debt completely from the G20 and all the investors, but we haven't seen any solution so far. So there is that side of the story, which is a debt problem. But if we look at, a, at the inflation uh, you know, uh, arguments, headline inflation is up, yes, in the US, the last print was 4.2%. But if you look be, be just below the headline, you would realize that it's very few components, energy in particular, which drove much of that increase. Core measures of inflation still um, muted. There was a 3% in last print. Not as alarming, especially if you consider the last decade, uh, US inflation averaged uh, just um, you know, 1.5% to 1.7%, so much, much lower than the, the implicit target of 2%. And if you take into account their new monetary policy framework, which says they would want to see inflation average slightly above 2% for a sustained period of time, it would seem that they will look through any temporary bridges in inflation target. Even if inflation were to go to about 4%, 4.5%, as long as it comes back uh, much lower uh, next year, we wouldn't see a Fed that is going to, to react mm -hmm. uh, simply because uh, the, the long-term average will still be much lower than uh, 2%. So I'm not yet convinced of the inflation story, especially if you look at the components of the CPI basket. If you look in other advanced economies as well, similar patterns, headline CPI shoots up, but core inflation is still much more muted. Mm. Bond markets have adjusted. If you look at break even, they've actually declined over the last couple of days, yeah. which means markets seems to be buying the Fed story. But the risk is a surprise. If we are sitting in an EM country like South Africa, we need to be cognizant of that inflation surprise that is persistent, but also of mm. a Fed that responds on an aggressive manner like they did mm. in 2013. That will be painful if it were to And uh, Raymond, considering what's going on with ESCOM at the moment, uh, this economy just really can't do with any more shocks. We had first quarter GDP numbers out this week, 4.6% annualized. Uh, but what we are seeing, and to both Warwick and Isa's point, is a K-shaped recovery in the global economy, not just uh, at a consumer level, but at a country level. Those that are rolling out vaccines uh, quicker are, are growing at a much faster rate than many in the developing world who are on the bottom leg of that K. Where would you say South Africa sits currently, given the GDP figure that we saw, which is backward looking, and what's happening with ESCOM now? 
Look, let's start with the good news, and there has been good news. Firstly, of course, that the world economy is in our corner, as we know, and we've seen that in the first quarter growth figures. And these are supporting, of course, the other high frequency indices we've seen in the past few months, that we have had a rebound, uh, quite a substantial rebound. And I suspect that in the light of these figures of the first quarter for our growth, we're probably all likely to adjust our forecast for, for this year a little bit, uh, maybe closer to the 5%. Uh, I think it's important, though, that these numbers come with a sort of health warning, if you like to put it that way. The first is, it's not the labor-intensive sectors that have performed well. And that's quite important when we look at the unemployment figures, because the unemployment figures do lag. So we would like to see an improvement there a little later. And of course, there are enormous structural problems in the labor market. The second is, of course, the issue of the pandemic and the third wave and how we deal with it. And the third is, of course, ESCOM. And, and, and we talk about load shedding. I think this is a series of blackouts. That's, that's what it is. And we're in a critical situation uh, and we have to manage it much better than we're doing now. We can fix it. It's not as if we are bereft of solutions. The fact remains that, once again, we've talked about this far too often. Those of us who've got good memories will know we've gone back a year or two where the warning lights were there, or the warning lights that were going out were certainly there, in the sense that we said, look, unless we develop the private sector's input into the grid, we are going to run into huge problems. And, you know, one of the uncertainties that we experience, not only with ESCOM, which we've rated as the biggest single risk to our economy at the moment, it is our inability to get more things right the first time around. Why do we have to make these huge mistakes first, which have to be corrected either because we don't act or we take the wrong decisions or we mm. siphon off the resources that should be devoted to getting certain things right. So I think the important point now is that what the current blackouts are telling us is there is now a huge urgency in developing the private sector inputs, the, the independent producers, that at least you create hope. Because remember what, what the Rater said to you last week in an interview. He said, even if we were on stream and got everything right, as far as ESCOM is concerned now, in terms of its capacity constraints, we would still have a huge energy deficit. And therefore, we need to bring the mm. independent producers on sooner rather than later. Cut the red tape and say to the nation, yes, there may still be some short-term difficulties, but there's hope now. We're injecting a whole new set of solutions that promise we will do better because it comes back you i want to feed this back into into the gdp figures yes it was good news what was the other piece of bad news that the fixed capital formation yep. was down that's where not today's growth is coming from the growth next year and the year after that's what worries me i'm not really worried about this year our four 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 and a half percent is probably in the back uh give or take a sort of few uh, so a few of these decimal points, and I like to say, well, what is the what is a few of these decimal points among friends? So that's okay. I'm concerned that the numbers for next year 
and thereafter, whether you talk to the Reserve Bank or the IMF or any one of our financial institutions who have, have done a bit of forecasting, it's down to one and a half, and if you're very lucky, two percent. What's going to drive that is partly to get the ESCOM situation right, mm. but linked to that is to be able to offer the policy certainty, not only on the energy front, but elsewhere, that will lay the foundations for translating this wonderful 4.5% into something sustainable that looks better than 1.5% or 2% over yeah. the next few years. And that brings you back to the investment sentiment issue and the, ne and the necessity to get your private fixed investment up in order to underpin the growth you want in the years ahead. Yeah, but you're only, uh, you Raymond, you're only going to do that if you actually have a, a Minister of Finance who understands the urgency of the situation. And uh, well done, Mr. Montash, on getting your MBA. Uh, hopefully, uh, they did teach uh, in that MBA class uh, the, the basics of supply and, uh, and demand, because what we're currently seeing is a, a utility that is unable to keep up with demand. As we see the economy starting to emerge from the pandemic, it just uh, it shows as our energy availability factor declines because of the aging fleet that we just don't have the ability through ESCOM to deliver the power that the country needs. And the, the minister gets really rankled when you bring up the issue around the self-generation cap up to 50 million. Megawatts. Uh, he ringed up the he, he ringed up Julieta Tulevi to complain uh, about this fact. In an interview with Judge Dennis Davis, the CEO of ESCOM, Andre Dereta, unequivocally said that if we relax the regulatory system to 50 megawatts, we could get a lot on the grid in a year. Well, that was put to him by Judge Dennis Davis, and uh, Dereta just said, "I'm going to stay in my lane," uh, because he was told to stay in his lane by the minister. The solutions are there, Warwick. We need to start calling for real accountability here because this economy and, and South Africans and the president says uh, the government doesn't take lightly our patience and resilience. It's been 13 years. I, I think that's uh, complete hogwash. Uh, totally, Michael. I mean, uh, I think you're preaching to, to the choir on that. I think the question is, how uh, is one going to get accountability if it's not coming through the ballot box? Um, hopefully then one gets accountability through other kinds of civil structures or it, it, at need I guess you might get to a certain point where uh, a series of lawsuits as we've seen happen with um, incompetent municipalities eventually uh, forces the state's hand. Um, I really would hope that we can get some voluntary change before we get to that sort of drastic situation. Uh, but certainly, uh, I mean, it's not unprecedented. I mean, if we think to, to Zimbabwe now, how Strive Masiwea made his uh, fortune there through through Econet uh, cell phones was because he used freedom of speech uh, provisions uh, in, the, in the Zimbabwean constitution and pointed out that because Zim telecoms were so bad, no one could speak to each other freely, uh, which, which also sounds like a rather strange... Um, <laughs> uh, circumstance considering what we what we what we see of that country be that as it may I mean if we look at our GDP breakdown uh, I, I mean all that all the action has happened in sectors that aren't really going to to pull SA through as, as uh, Raymond was pointing out the labor and the unemployment solvers like manufacturing and construction really were absent from the party that bothers me 
Yes. I could like to draw a distinction between business confidence and investor confidence. Yeah. Because someone will say, but look, the latest survey of business confidence is up. Quite rightly so. Based on the high on the high frequency data, I would expect that. But investor confidence is driven by some other factors, and that is below below business confidence. And it's investor confidence we want mm. to get up to translate the business confidence mm. into investment and growth. That's mm. where we are now. Isa, I want to bounce it over to you. What would you like to see happen around ESCOM? Because we're such a stuck record on this. And to Warwick's point, yes, we, we preach to the converted in this country. The, the plans and solutions are on the table. The last thing we need is another management consulting firm uh, helping an organized business lobby create another plan or progress uh, or report or what we just need to see now is execution what what are your thoughts on how we get out of the the, the, the dark woods that have been created by escom michael the the reality is there is no mining company that can come from offshore to our country and sink a mining shaft without security of energy there is no manufacturing company that would come into our country and establish operations without being guaranteed security of energy. That is a fact of investors. They need inputs which they can use in their production process. At the current moment, uh, what you get from the Department of Energy and Mineral Resources is this just transition, which has some basis in terms of protecting you know, those workers that are in the coal belt uh, which by and large um, you know also benefit from a transformation point of view but at what cost if we are preventing independent power producers from adding to the grid in a way that would uh, enable them to establish new operations and create a lot more jobs than the ones that are being created that are being uh, protected in the coal belt, uh, belt uh, industries so for me i think i would want to see uh, that limit being lifted from 10 megawatts to 50 megawatts. There was an agreement, business for SA, uh, labor, and, and even some of the, um, uh, you know, colleague, their colleagues in, in government, including ESCOM itself, as you alluded to, uh, the CEO of ESCOM mentioning, we could get more energy onto the grid within a year. So it is something that is well known where we agree, but for some reason, we aren't making the right decisions. And that for me is a significant problem. But if you just look at it differently, the lack of public sector investment as a start in itself is also a problem. Because if you look historically, public sector investment leads private sector investment. The private sector requires some level of public sector investment that de-risks or that improves the returns so for them to, to come and invest on top of it. We have mm. always seen that trend. That trend is well established in many other countries. But if you look at the recent GDP numbers, you have seen public investment collapse by 28%, which means we have already uh, moved in a wrong way um, from where we want to see public investment, which underlies private investment. So you take that fact of public investment plus lack of energy, uh, in addition to the many missteps that we are making in other policy areas, it doesn't do well mm. to actually incentivize investment going forward. Yes, business confidence is up, but it is up in the wrong spaces. 
it is mm. up in retail it is up in uh, vehicle dealers all sectors that are consumer driven not necessarily sectors that will uh, stimulate construction and manufacturing and if you're actually speaking of construction and manufacturing those sectors still remain below 50 which means there's still much more pessimist and if you look at the consumer facing sectors they have been helped by you know a, a lot of cash payments which were made as people took retrenchment packages uh, which means they could spend a lot more that is not sustainable beyond this year we will have a significant cons uh, consumer strain that is going to hold those sectors back so we are not actually improving in the right type of sectors where we see improvement currently is not sustainable and sadly the president's message uh, of of hope at the g7 leaders summit uh, will remain just that until foreign investors see a real commitment to uh, thorough and proper transformation uh, and i'm talking about the kind of transformation in the economy uh, that isn't uh, an, uh, an obstacle to growth. And we've seen the transformation argument used by the Competition Commission recently in the Burger King deal. Uh, and Isa, I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on that uh, because it has certainly stirred a hornet's nest of protest from business. Not the idea of transformation, but the fact that you've got the Competition Commission using a public interest provision, only one of them, and there are many public interest provisions in the amendments, to block a deal that would have benefited current black shareholders, it would have benefited future black suppliers, uh, and uh, quite frankly, seems to be completely wrong in law. What are your thoughts on uh, the Grand Parade deal? At the height of the lockdown, the hard lockdowns last year, there was a lot of discussions about creating a new economy that is more inclusive. Those discussions have almost died down. And if you look at the recent print in GDP and unemployment numbers shows we are moving in the right in the wrong direction compared to where uh, those discussion pointed to. And if you just look at the Competition Commission decision, they essentially preserve the status quo and it actually sets a precedent for other future potential investment into the country that may hold the economy backward. So in my view, uh, you know, 0% of zero is zero. But if you have some growth in the economy because there is inward investment, there is bound to be jobs that are going to be created for some people that are currently outside of the labor market. So I would prioritize that uh, uh, first and then require the transformation um, aspects uh, at, a, at a later stage. Perhaps the, it could have been you know, structured differently uh, but as it stands, it doesn't board well for fixed investment, particularly from foreign firms. Warwick, what are your thoughts on the decision which has stirred that, that hornet's nest of interest? Uh, and what I worry about here as well is the creation of almost second-class corporate citizens, where uh, if you're a black shareholder, you are going to be dictated to in terms of how you can exit uh, your investments here. Um, Michael, I... I get the feeling and we, when we look at something uh, like this, we, we're winding up with a, a snake eating its tail. Uh, and I think it's a, 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 uh, an issue that to some degree the, the, the whole discussion around once empowered, always empowered goes around. Because when you're in that position, your empowered shareholder now has a shareholding that they can sell into an open market. Whereas uh, if, if, if they're in the position that the company is now not considered empowered, 
then then they may very well struggle either because the company resists it uh, or because they can't get um, necessarily a market related price maybe they're lucky and and, and they can but uh, maybe they can't uh, so it, it, it all all depends on who who is out there with um, with uh, full pockets in terms of the BE space mm. so it, it's a very open question but my I think a broader concern I have about BE uh, quite apart from uh, my, my, my issues around government and so on is that I'm, I'm starting to feel that at this point in the evolution of our democracy we surely should be more means tested around empowerment uh, as opposed to as, as opposed to still going back to, to, to old apartheid documents and saying who was classified as what. I think we need to have a culture that people who are in trouble and are willing w willing to, to, to help themselves, as long as they are helped, get the help that they need. Whereas people who have thrived and done well no longer need a helping hand. I, I think there's a transition that needs to happen here. Mm. Um, and perhaps I've, I've opened something that is a bigger discussion elsewhere, but it's... It, it's a, it's an important um, rephasing in our economy that needs to happen. And I think a question that no doubt the president uh, will field uh, at the G7 Leaders Summit as well. As many international investment groups, lobby groups in the EU, for example, have questioned uh, BE specifically at the ownership level while saying they're committed to uh, helping the country transform through procurement, uh, through equity equivalent deals. But it is time to have a conversation and to Isa's point about growing the economy, uh, because really what you don't want to be doing is uh, dividing up an ever diminishing pie. That uh, is a, a race to uh, failed state and, and to the bottom. That was Warwick Lucas, Chief Investment Officer at Galileo Asset Managers, uh, who was joined around the table by Raymond Parsons, Professor in the School of Business and Governance at Northwest University, and Isam Plunger, Chief Economist at Alexander Forbes.